Well, because when you're in public life, um, you always have to balance uh, the cost to you as a person and to your family uh, against the good that you can do. Today on The Review, an insider's view of polarization and frustration in Washington. From the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. I'm David Levine. Today we're talking with Representative Stephen LaTourette. Stephen LaTourette, who served 18 years as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Northeast Ohio, is president of McDonald's Hopkins Government Strategies. After retiring from Congress in January, he is currently a fellow at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. Congressman LaTourette, thank you for joining us. Thank you. You've retired after 18 years of Congress. What are your thoughts on your time there? Well, one, uh, I'm one of the few members after 18 years that retired undefeated and unindicted, which is an accomplishment <laughs> today. Uh, yeah, thank you. But two, uh, it's, it's amazing, you know, 18 years is a long time. It's also not a long time. But it's amazing how things change during the course of that 18 years from a place that's always partisan. I mean, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat. There are disagreements on, on certain sets of issues. but. But after two redistrictings in 2010 and 2000, uh, the red seats have gotten redder, the blue seats have gotten bluer, and that's led to um, an unwillingness or an inability for people to sort of reach across the aisle and find common ground. That's new. Was, was that the case when you first got into Congress? Well, when I first got, I, I came with the Newt Gingrich uh, revolutionaries, even though I wasn't much of a revolutionary. And, in 1994, and the, there were some rocky moments at first because if you think about it, the Democratic Party had been in the majority for 40 years, since 1954. Mm -hmm. So there were some bad, there, bad blood that predated my arrival there, and so, you know, some Democrats were not happy about not being in power anymore, and some Republicans were of the view that, oh, it's payback time for the horrible way I was treated you know, under the old regime. And I, I didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, but then once we got through that, and once we got through the government shutdown uh, of 1995, where you had President Clinton and Speaker Newt Gingrich sort of, you know, doing that mano at mano business and chest bumping, it, we got down to business and we were able to work some things out. In your 18-year career, what are you most proud of? What do you think you could have done better? Well, you know, I. I was um, always have had the lowest uh, score of voting strictly with my party of any member from Ohio. Is that a source of pride? I'm proud of that. Okay. I'm proud of that because, you know, the thing is, people that go to Washington and vote 100% with their party, no matter which party, I mean, you could send a machine to go do that or a monkey you could train to do that. And, and there really does need to be some independent thought. And not every issue that comes to the fore has a Republican solution or a Democratic solution that is the best fit for where you represent. And so our expression is that if you don't represent your district, you're not going to represent your district. So I am, I am proud of that. What, what I could have done better is, is I probably could have unshackled myself a little earlier on, on some tough votes that, uh, you know, your, your head and your heart feel one way, but your political interests go a different way. Uh, and uh, I, I came to that 
probably late in my career, and I'm proud of that, but I could have done better early on. With that in mind, what would your advice to be to people who either you know, want to get into Congress or more generally want to get into politics, like some of your fellows potentially here? Well, if, if you want to get into politics, a lot of people make the mistake that they think they have to go be lawyers, and, and Congress has too many lawyers, first of all. And then second of all, I have a daughter who graduated with a degree in uh, political science, and I, I said, Sarah, I don't know any political scientists, and so you really don't need that. The, the ability to be in, in public service at any level, I think, depends upon your ability to communicate ideas in writing and, and by way of the spoken word. So I always tell people to focus on communication, uh, English, and your writing skills. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you could have the, the best idea in the world floating around in your head. But if you can't get that idea out in a way that I can understand it, then it just remains the best idea in your head. You mentioned that there may be too many lawyers in, in, in Congress, gen yeah. specifically Washington more generally. Yeah. How do you think that manifests itself? What's, what's the nature of the legal profession and, and its impact on Washington? Well, I, I think it's just a natural progression. That for whatever reason, lawyers have, have, the legal profession has always been a pathway to, to public life. Now, maybe it's because we're all A-type personalities. Maybe it's because we like to hear ourselves talk. I don't, I don't know exactly <laughs> what it is, but, but I, I think it's upwards of 70 percent of the members of Congress are, are lawyers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the Congress, the, the Senate's a little bit different, but the House of Representatives should look like America. And, and uh, America doesn't have 70 percent lawyers. We could use a few more uh, teachers and, and business people and, and uh, housewives and things of that. I think you'd, you'd have a fair representation of what folks in America are thinking as opposed to just what, what the politicians are thinking. You spent some time on the Appropriations Committee in the mm -hmm. House, yep. Um, and so uh, you, uh, you're very knowledgeable about the budget and its and issues related to that. Yep. Um, what are your thoughts on our current budget crisis, if it is a crisis, and what should we do going forward? Well, it's a crisis, and and it's a great example of. I mean, one of the reasons that I left <coughs> is that anybody that looks at the sixteen and a half trillion dollars that we owe, soon to be twenty-two trillion at the end of the president's term. And, and thinks that we don't have to do something about it is, is not thinking clearly. And both parties have adopted these line-in-the-sand positions that, that aren't intellectually honest. The Republican position on revenues and taxes is not intellectually honest in that we're operating the government today with the, the same level of revenue as a percentage of GDP that we did in 1959. That's not sustainable. And likewise, for the Democrats who say we can't do anything to Medicare and Social Security when the life expectancy in this country has gone from 63 to 79, that, and that those entitlements make up two-thirds of the budget, that's not intellectually honest either. Uh, and, and until we get some leadership from someplace, from the White House, from the House, from the Senate, of people who are willing to say, Fixing that problem is more important than my being reelected. Uh, we're we're in trouble. Do you think that's a remnant of the baby boomer generation, or is it more strictly just an issue uh, an issue of the political climate of Washington D.C.? I, I think it's just a, 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 a byproduct of the political polarization that occurs in the nation. You know, because both arguments are premised upon the fact that people are greedy, and I, I reject that argument. So it says that 
you know, on Social Security and Medicare that the greatest generation that, that fought the Second World War and really uh, ushered in the industrialization of the United States is so greedy that they want to suck up all the benefits in Social Security and Medicare and leave it in a shambles for their kids and their grandkids. I, I, don't, I don't accept that argument. And likewise, the argument that people who have done well in this country are so greedy that they don't want to pay any additional money to, to support the government, I, I, don't, I reject that as well. You know, the, the rich people that I talk to don't mind paying more taxes, but they do have a, a but. And the but is, as long as you just don't waste the money on, on stupid spending. If you really use it to, to help bring our fiscal house in order, then that's a good idea. And the same thing with the senior citizens that I talk to. They, they don't have the view that, well, I got mine and now too bad for my kids and my grandkids. They're willing to, to look at some changes that, that don't you know, leave them in the cold, but by the same time uh, preserve those programs that they've enjoyed for the next generation. Do you think that we're in a position where things are going to get, get worse before they get better, or do you think you know, help is on the horizon in some form? I, I don't see anybody stepping up to the plate. Um, the Republicans, I'm a Republican, John Boehner and Mitch McConnell will do nothing to challenge the very conservative on the tax issue, and at least to this moment in time, President Obama has shown no willingness to challenge his party on the middle class entitlements. Now. I shouldn't say no when he sent up his budget uh, in, on April the 8th. He does have chained CPI. Now, chained CPI on, on entitlements is not some magic elixir. It only raises $30 billion a year. But the fact that he put it in there, I think he does deserve credit. And that's why you know the good sign of a bargain is if everybody hates it, you're probably on to something. And everybody hates the president's budget. Obviously, you feel strongly about all of these issues. Sure. So then, you know, why not stay in Congress and, and keep fighting? Well, because when you're in public life, um, you always have to balance uh, the cost to you as a person and to your family uh, against the good that you can do. Mm -hmm. And as long as the good that you can do outweighs the cost to you as a person and, and as a, a husband and a father, uh, then you, you keep doing it. I reached the conclusion that after the election of 2010, when I saw the Republican conference moved to a point where we couldn't pass a transportation bill, we couldn't pass a farm bill, we couldn't f fix the problem of student loan rates doubling from 3 to 6 percent, that I, I just didn't have the ability to, to be effective from within anymore. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a little bit like the guy, you know, you pass him on the street and, and uh, he's hitting himself in the head with a board and you ask him, you know, what are you doing that for? And he says, well, because it feels so good when I stop. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that's the point I read. I see. So since you've ret retired, mm -hmm. one, of, one of the things you've done is you've come to Chicago. Yep. Um, and you've joined the University of Chicago as a fellow. Can you yep. talk about what you're, what you're doing here and what your goals are? Yeah, I, I'm excited about this opportunity. I, th I think if I had uh, drawn it up on a blackboard, I might not have done it now because I just retired. I've started two new ventures in Washington. But um, David Axelrod invited me in January to come do a panel on guns with uh, Mayor Emanuel and Tom Brokaw and, and others. Uh, and out of that, uh, I guess, reached the conclusion that uh, I'd be a good fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics and extended that invitation. So I'm here for 10 weeks. This is my fifth week on April the 30th.
and came at the right time in terms of the in terms of the weather. Well, the, f the first couple times were a little shaky, yeah. but and the thunderstorms weren't so good. But uh, today's a beautiful day, and I hope it continues that way. I hope to watch the uh, White Sox play the Indians before my time's over. Uh, but it's uh, we have seminars at 4:30 uh, on the days that I'm here. I'm talking about. You asked me about the deficit and the debt. That's what I'm talking about and teaching about. And uh, we're getting 30, 40 uh, students. It's voluntary. It's not a credit type of uh, operation. And, and uh, I'm, I'm finding it's rejuvenating in that you know you're getting people much younger than I am coming in, and it's refreshing to see their level of knowledge and interest in in politics. And and it's refreshing because. With all the bad things that are happening in politics, it would be easy for a young person today to say, that's not for me, I'll leave that to somebody else. The fact that there, there are so many people here interested, I, I think is a good sign for the country. The, the students who come to your seminars, maybe they're not students, what are you, what are you hoping that they learn? I, I hope that they learn one. Uh, I asked uh, some of them the other day, have any of you ever seen a Republican? And, <laughs> and some of them had and some of them hadn't. So, you know, one of the things that's going on in, in the political world and this polarization is that the sides demonize each other. And so if I can humanize the face of the Republican Party and, and they leave with the notion that, well, I may not agree with, with some of the things that Steve's talking about, but he seems like a person I can, and that's the way most Republicans and Democrats mm -hmm. are. So that would be one. And two, uh, on the subject of the deficit and the debt, I hope to... Uh, communicate to them that this is a big problem that deserves big solutions and the only way the big problems have ever been fixed in our country uh, has been when people come together. Kind of backtracking, you mentioned briefly um, guns yeah. in this country and obviously right now in particular, um, but not necessarily at this point more so than any other point, but yeah. guns are a are a very important issue that this country has to deal with. Sure. What do you think we're doing about the issue right now, and what do you think we should be doing going forward? Well, I, I don't understand. You know, I, I have an A, or did, I'm not in Congress anymore, but an A rating from the National Rifle Association after 18 years. It never required me to do anything crazy or wild. Uh, and if the vote had come on universal background checks, I think that's exactly what needs to be done. And I think it's embarrassing that uh, the Senate couldn't come up with the votes to, to get that modest measure uh, taken care of. Now, then there are people who, and, and the reason, I'll tell you the reason, and the reason is that everybody always wants to outdo the other, and so the extremes get extreme. So you have some people who don't want any guns in the United States. And and that's their stated position. It can be I'm their from a position. Place that talks about talks that way sometimes. So. Well, you can have that position, yeah. but you can't have that position with the Second Amendment in the no. Constitution. So, the real honest argument, if you have that view, is change the Constitution, and then then you can then you can advocate that. But as long as you have the Second Amendment, uh, you can't say we're not going to have guns. And then the other one is, the other extreme is we should have any kind of gun anytime we want and do anything with it. And that's also not in concert with the Constitution or the way the Supreme Court has done it. So, but what happens is, rather than finding that sweet spot, which in my opinion was the universal background checks that takes care of the criminals, takes care of the, uh, the, the unregistered sales between people, takes care of the people with demonstrable mental illness, uh, that would have been a modest, but I think effective uh, reform. And I think it's unfortunate that, that we didn't get that done. 
The NRA is obviously one of the more important, mm -hmm. powerful lobbies in this country. Yeah. Uh, one of your other ventures now, um, to a certain extent, is a lobbying effort. Can you yeah. talk about what your goals are with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. I joined a law firm uh, that uh, is in seven cities, including Chicago. It's called McDonald Hopkins. And they did not have a, uh, an office in Washington. And so my wife and I opened their Washington office, and we are engaged in government strategies and lobbying. Uh, I can't lobby for a year. Uh, there's a one-year ban on my going to the House or Senate. Uh, but because we started from scratch, we didn't inherit a bunch of clients, and so we've been able to uh, sort of pick who we want to represent. And, and I'm real proud that we represent the uh, public television stations in the country in their fight to uh, preserve their funding stream. Uh, also uh, proud of the fact that we represent a group called the uh, Citizens for Responsible Energy Choices that uh, whose stated purpose is to move Republicans along in their dialogue on climate change and renewable energy sources. So um, those are all those are all worthy goals and I'm uh, excited about it. On a final note to kind of bring this all together, yep. when, when did you leave Congress? Was it January the third? So now we're we're f almost four months. Yep. Almost four months out. Yep. Uh, reflecting, Pat, what are your thoughts on the last four months of your life? You know, I, I should have done it ten years ago if I knew how good I was going to feel. I mean, I get to spend more time with my kids. My weekends are my own. I get to pick who I associate with and who I don't want to associate <laughs> I, with. I assume that was less true while you were <laughs> yeah. in Congress. Yeah, and 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 you know, I, I don't have to listen to a bunch of guys argue and. And not get anywhere. And I've, I've always tried to be an, a results-oriented person, try to find a solution. And uh, the Congress isn't working that way. And so uh, I've, I've enjoyed the last four months a lot. And this experience at the University of Chicago has been a nice one for me, too. Congressman Lotzeret, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Our podcast is produced and edited by Claire O'Hanlon and David Levine. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. Special thanks this week to Sarah Sibley. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org and on iTunes, or email us at media at chicagopolicyreview.org. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.